I'm happy to be with you this morning and, and just continue on our journey through Luke 4 and Jesus' inauguration address, Jesus' declaration, Jesus' mission statement, whatever you want to call it. This is the king putting his foot down and saying, here's what I'm here to do. In Luke chapter 4, go ahead and turn there in your Bible. We're going to read again. And uh, I know we took a bit of a break because of, you know, um, having guest speakers and things. But going back to that Luke 4 reality where Jesus has come out of the wilderness, went into the wilderness full of the Spirit, came out of the wilderness full of the Spirit, and uh, went, to, went to work, went to battle, went to war. He didn't go to war against the Romans. He didn't go to war against uh, people. He went to war against the principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this age that had blinded those that would not see the light. He came and, 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 and utterly destroyed the works of the wicked one. In Luke chapter 4, he is reading from the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 61, and he's proclaiming, this is what I'm here to do. Because after he reads it, he says, this scripture is fulfilled in your midst today. How many of us are so used to opening the scripture, and perhaps have opened our Bibles so many times, that, that we, um, we begin to think of it in a scholarly way, which I'm not against scholarship, I'm not against academics, but uh, we begin to see it so so distantly and scholarly that we forget to say, God, you're doing this today. God, I'm looking for this today. I'm expecting this today. And when Jesus opened the book, nobody in the room was expecting that he would say, this is right now. Because they've been trained all their life to look and expect and to talk about the Messiah in the future. But nobody really expected the Messiah today. You know what I mean? Most of the people of Israel were, were missed the Messiah walking in front of them. Jesus said, you missed your day of visitation. Why? One of the reasons is, is because sometimes when we talk about something enough, we hear about something enough, we stop believing it's even going to happen in our lifetime. We stop expecting it. It becomes something we've learned rather than something that's a part of us. And so as they would read Isaiah 61, they'd say, this is talking about the Lord's Messiah. This is talking about the son of David. This is talking about the king. This is talking about redemption. And even as they would long for it and pray for it, there were very few people in Israel who were actually expecting it. We know there were people like Simeon, people like Anna. There were people that were, but they were the minority. So when Jesus came and said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, and he drops the mic and sits down. Like he didn't have a literal mic, but you know what I mean. <laughs> He says he closed the book. So that's my version of drop the mic. He closed the book and he sits down. And the Bible says every eye in the room is fixed on him. And you can imagine now, so people say it's because of where he sat or whatever. I imagine all that's true. But I also imagine when someone opens a centuries-old section of Scripture and says that's happening right now. I would imagine that would get your attention. This man has just claimed to be the Messiah. And he said, this is what I'm here to do. 
every miracle that happened after that, every sign, every wonder, every work of Jesus came in line with his mission statement here. This is what I'm here to do. And as we've said so many times before throughout this series of, of, of reading, we and they're talking about Luke 4, we've emphasized this, and I hope you've got it, that Jesus was anointed for this purpose, and so are you. And the anointing is more than just feel-good goosebumps. Thank God for feel-good goosebumps. But it's more than that. The presence of God in your life is for more than just that glory moment where you feel it and you, and you say, wow, this is awesome. I thank God for those. Because you know what? When I sense and, and, and when we begin to experience the manifest presence of God, the presence of Jesus changes everything. The presence of Jesus it's just, just does, His presence changes things we never could walk ourselves through or talk ourselves through or think ourselves through or, or medicate ourselves through, whatever. The presence of Jesus does what we couldn't do. And so there are moments where we feel his presence and it does something on a tangible level. But his presence is not just for a feeling. His presence has a purpose in your life. His presence, first of all, the purpose is he said he'd never leave you or forsake you. But when we talk about the anointing of the Holy Spirit, that's more than just the presence of the Holy Spirit. The presence of the Holy Spirit is going to be with you for the rest of your life. Now whether you surrender to it or you're aware of it, that's a different thing. But Jesus said that his spirit would be a pledge for you. That's, he's never going to leave you or forsake you. And the proof of that is his Holy Spirit. So we're not like the Old Testament prophets who say, don't take your spirit away from me because he won't take his spirit from me. His spirit is the pledge that we're his. Right? So his spirit won't leave us. Now, you may go through a long season of your life. Hopefully, it's, it's, it's not a long season. But you may go through a season in your life where you ignore him and you kind of put all these other things first. And you don't sense the Spirit of God. You don't listen to the Spirit of, Spirit of God. You're not led by the Spirit of God. But that's not because he left you. But when we talk about the anointing, that's the Spirit of God empowering, giving you Grace to do what you couldn't do. Working through you, working on you, working in you. And when we talk about that anointing, so many times we limit the anointing to moments when the lights are down low and the keyboard's playing and we feel this moment. But the anointing is so much bigger than that. You are anointed for this mission. You're anointed in the same, re- same way that Jesus was. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me So he has anointed me for a purpose, and here's my purpose. And of course, we know through the scripture that his purpose has now become our purpose. We've inherited his ministry. He left us here to continue his ministry. That's why we've been given his spirit. That's why we've been given his word. That's why we've been given everything we need to continue the ministry of Jesus. So Luke chapter 4, let's read it again. He says this, In verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach or proclaim the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. So a lot of times we read recovery of sight to the blind and we think of just the laying hands on them or or the the, the speaking to them and, and, and their sight would come back. And that's good. That's how Jesus did it. But before he did any of that, he proclaimed recovery of sight to the blind. And when he'd go in a village and proclaim, this is what I'm here to do, what do you think they did? They brought their blind people to him. 
Why in the world did the blind guy go, hey, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me? Why, why would he think that some guy walking down the road could do that? Sure, he heard stories about Jesus, and he knew Jesus did miracles, but he also knew from Jesus' own mouth, here's what I'm here to do. So their response to Jesus' proclamation, you see, because faith comes by hearing, and hearing, the, hearing by the word of God. So when we hear God's invitation, when we hear God's uh, promises, then something rises in us. We go, yeah, yeah, that's for me. That's not just for some old guy 2,000 years ago. It's for me. And then when faith comes, it moves us to action, doesn't it? We come to Jesus. We, we take a step. We call, we call out. We, we whatever. We respond in faith. And every work of God that's given to us through Jesus is a work of grace. And the Bible says it's, this is how we were saved, by grace through faith. So by faith, we receive the grace of God. We believe God. See, we take him at his word, right? That's, all, that's what faith is, of taking Jesus at his word, taking God at his word, and saying, okay, if that's true, I'm going to respond. And so when he said, I'm, I'm set to proclaim recovery of sight to the blind, then they, they responded to that, and they were healed. He goes on and he says, to set free those who are oppressed. And then we come to the part, the part that we're talking about this, this week, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Some of your Bibles might say the year of the Lord's favor. Some of your Bibles may say the acceptable year of the Lord. Some even might say the year of Jubilee. And all these things are true. Uh, I think the King James says the acceptable year of the Lord, and that's lost some of its vim and vigor in our modern vernacular because acceptable to us is passable, right? <laughs> acceptable, we just think like, oh, it's good enough. But in the scripture, in the language, of, for instance, the King James was written in, acceptable didn't mean it was decent, it was good enough. Acceptable, acceptable meant it was good, it was right, it was excellent. When we talk about the year of the Lord's favor, the favorable year of the Lord, we're hearkening back to a couple of things. Number one, and most of you will know this, I use the word jubilee. So in the Old Covenant, they had a day, I mean a year, called the year of jubilee. Every 50 years, you'd have the year of jubilee, where debts were forgiven, people would go back to their, their homeland, if their land had been mortgaged from them, had been taken from them, if they, it says all the slaves would go back to their homes. And that might sound weird, so why are the slaves going back to their homes? In fact, let's just read it, and I'll just, we'll talk about it in a minute. Hold your place in Luke 4, and let's, let's jump to Levitic, Leviticus chapter 25. Leviticus chapter 25 talks about two different things. It talks about a Sabbath year. And every seven years, they would take a break. They would give their land a rest. Now, this is before they understood scientifically the crop rotation, things like this. So they didn't understand these things. But, but God is telling them, give their land a rest. Now, there's a practical reason for that. And there's also a spiritual reason for that. How many of you know when you give the Lord a day out of your week that you're not going to work? That in the natural, it feels like you're going to get less done. But that's thinking naturally. When you give God 10% as a tithe, it feels like you'll have 10% less. But that's not how it works in God's economy. 
See, what we're doing is we're saying, God, I trust you enough. Just like when they got manna from the sky. When God sent manna from heaven to the Israelites, food came out of the sky and landed on the ground and it tasted amazing. Like for the first 30 years they had it. <laughs> no, just, it tasted really good. This manna came from the sky and, and, and there was only a couple of rules here. And one of the rules was every day you go out and collect manna. Every day. I mean, there was enough for you to collect for the whole week, but don't. Because if they collected for tomorrow, what would happen? It would spoil, worms would eat it, right? It, would, it was so full of nutrients that this was not a hard thing for it to do. But God was showing them something. God was showing them that if you are gathering for tomorrow, there's, there's, there's a part of you that's saying, I don't know if it's going to be here tomorrow. So I better get it today, because who knows, tomorrow I may not have it. Your, your faith's not in God. You're transferring your faith once again to yourself. I'm going to provide for tomorrow. Rather than trusting that it came today, it'll come tomorrow. And the only day that that was an exception was on the sixth day. On the sixth day, you gathered for two days because on the seventh day, you would rest. So there's this idea of God, and, 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 and sure enough, when they gathered for two days on the sixth day, it didn't spoil that day. And God was showing them that, look, I'm going to take care of you every day. You don't have to trust me on this, but I will take care of you. I'm, I, it's going to be here every day. Don't you worry about tomorrow. I got you tomorrow. But also that, that, you know, when there was a time for you to rest, trust that I will preserve what you have. So the Sabbath day that they gave to the Lord, listen, when, you were, when you're harvesting, when you're planting, those are days you need every day you've got. And it would have been difficult at times for them to give a day to the Lord and trust that somehow that he would take care of them even if they were taking one out of every seven days off or one out of every day, seven days away from work to give to the Lord. But he's, he's asking for their trust. He's saying, listen, I will provide for you. Give this day to me. Watch what I do with this day. So you can imagine taking a whole year out of your farming. Can you imagine how, how would that would feel? Can you imagine um, the, the worry that might be creeping into your mind? If I take a year off, if I don't work the land, I don't have a lot of land. If I don't work this land every seven years, how are we going to survive? And God's saying, trust me on this. I'm taking care of you. But then every 50 years, he says this. We're going to read it... Um, Let's see, where should we start? Verse 8. Leviticus 25, 8. You are also to count off seven Sabbaths of years for yourselves. Seven times seven years. Does anybody know how many years that is? 49. You guys are math whizzes. <laughs> that you have the time of the seven Sabbaths of years, namely 49 years. Oh, you didn't know the math. You just skipped ahead. <laughs> uh, I'll ask you another difficult math question. What, what year comes after the 49th year? 50th, man, gee. Y'all are geniuses. Verse 9, you shall then sound a ram's horn abroad on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound a horn all throughout your land. You shall thus consecrate the 50th year and proclaim a release through the land to all its inhabitants. That's very important. Proclaim a release through the land to every inhabitant, 
Nobody's exempt from this. Proclaim release through the land. And God puts so much emphasis on that proclamation. Because this proclamation isn't somebody's good idea. This is God. He's saying, I want you to tell him, I said this. For every Sabbath, Sabbath. So every, every seven, seven years. You know what I mean? So every 49 years. The following year is a year of jubilee. That you that you're stepping into, you are stepping into my Sabbath rest. You are stepping into a year of favor. You are stepping into a year where you are to proclaim release to everybody. And then he says this. It shall be a jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his own property, and each of you shall return to his own family. Now that's important, and, and there are some translations that make it a bit clearer. You might not catch what he means by returning to your own family. He's not saying leave your wife and go home to mom and dad. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about people that are slaves. Now you say, hang on. Why is slavery cool except for the 50th year? We're not, talking about the, the, we're not talking about Israelites going and getting people and bringing them back and saying, you're my slave now. We're talking about indentured servanthood. Do you know what that is? So if you're in debt to somebody, you've worked up a debt that's beyond yourself to pay back. You can't pay it back or your family worked up a debt. What you would do was you would give yourself an indentured servanthood basically as a slave until your debt's paid off. So this isn't somebody that their neighbor came over, bonked them over the head, dragged them over and said, you're my slave now. This is someone that has put themselves in slavery, has sold themselves into slavery. Now listen, a lot of my ancestors came to North America as indentured servants. I've got the dates of when they became free men. Amen. Thank God for freemans. I've got the dates when they became freemen. Basically, so I had a 12-year-old ancestor that came over uh, in the early 1600s to the Jamestown settlement with Lord Delaware. That's where the Delaware River is named after him, the Delaware State. And strangely enough, the Delaware Indians who were there first got named after him. I don't know how that happened. (laughs) (laughs) They're the Lene Lenape, but we call them, hey, we'll name you after a European dude. You feel okay with that? Anyways, I had a 12-year-old ancestor named William Cox who came over. Now, How did a 12-year-old get the money to come to the new world? He didn't. He sold himself into indentured servanthood. So he said, if you'll take me over, give me a place to stay, feed me, I'll work for you until I work off my debt. And at some point, you work off your debt to your free person. That may take the rest of your life. It may take generations, depending on how much debt you worked up. So the Israelites would at times, if they got so bad in debt, they would sell themselves into slavery. And he says, at this 50th year, I don't care how much debt is left, they're going home. And you're going to return their land to them. So some people would mortgage their land. They'd say, I can't pay you back. Um, I'll mortgage my land. You can have my land for this period of time. God says, no, they, they get, everybody goes back to their own land. You get your land back. You get your life back. You get your family back. Is that fair? Now, I don't know how many people are are making loans on the 49th year. Right? Uh, It's not fair. But it is just. Because what God is saying is, you think this belongs to you. None of this belongs to you. It belongs to me. And if I say everybody goes home and everybody gets their stuff back, I have the right to say that. 
And he, of course, was foreshadowing a time when we would step into a permanent jubilee, when we would step into his jubilee, when we would step into a time where Jesus took our debt and he took our, 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 everything we've owed and everything we did wrong upon himself and he proclaimed release throughout the land to every inhabitant of the world. He proclaimed release. And whether or not they stepped into it is their choice, but he proclaimed it. Jesus said, if I'm lifted up on the cross, I will draw all men unto me. He didn't say just the Jews. He didn't just say the nice people. He didn't just say these people or that people. He said, I will draw all of humanity to myself. First John says that he bore the sins, not just of us, but of the whole world. Now, I'm not a universalist. I don't think that means everybody is, is, is good. Everybody goes to heaven. Because Jesus told us that's not the case. Just because he paid the price doesn't mean everybody accepts that. They can reject that, but it's a dumb move to reject it, isn't it? Thank God. Thank God. Proclaim release. Everybody goes home. He says, now notice this, it's, you consecrate the 50th year. Now, what does it mean to consecrate? It means to set it apart. And, and more specifically, when he would use this word consecrate, it means it's set, set apart from all the other years, but it's set apart for me. So when a year was set, set apart for him, he says everybody goes home. Everybody goes free. This is my year. You have to know that it is the heart of God that you are free. It is the design, the nature, the character, the, the, the will of God that you are free. Now here's the problem. Here's why so many of us struggle with this. Because those people in slavery weren't, weren't enslaved like some people throughout history who were enslaved through no fault of their own. Somebody just came and took them. We talked about that when Jesus said, I've come to proclaim release to the captives. These people were slaves because of their own bad decisions or, or bad fortune, I guess you could say. Things didn't go their way. But they put themselves in slavery in some way or another, right? Now, sometimes it wasn't their fault. Sometimes they had a bad year. Sometimes, I mean, you know, there's no blame here, but I'm sure there were people who said, I ran up a debt I couldn't pay, so that's why I'm a servant. That's why my land is mortgaged. That's why I don't have this. And God said, I don't care whose fault it was, you're free. And so many of us struggle with this or have struggled with this, this reality that doesn't matter whose fault it is, he says you're free. Amen. Oh, no, but I, I kind of, I need to, hmm, I feel like I owe him something. I feel like I got, you know, that attitude is a bit arrogant. And it doesn't feel arrogant, it feels humble. But it's arrogant because what you're saying is I have the capacity to pay for myself. And you don't. You'll be a slave for the rest of your life. You, you could be a slave for 100 lifetimes and never pay off the debt. Jesus has come to set the captives free. Come to set you free. Come to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And you got your stuff back. And you got your family back. And you got Cousin Willie who just made some bad decisions. You got him back too. Everybody came home and was reconciled to the family, reconciled to the land, and reconciled to God. Because God's saying, this land really isn't yours. It's mine. You don't own it, so you can't hold it over someone else. I get to say, they go free. What a wonderful picture. Amen. Can you imagine that? See, pretty much everybody alive would have experienced at least one of these years in their lifetime. And they experienced the reality of debts being forgiven. 
slaves going home, family members reunited, going back to your old farm. What a wonderful picture. He goes on and he says this. He says, It shall be a year of jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his own property. Each of you shall return to his family. Verse 11, You shall have the 50th year as a jubilee. You will not sow, nor reap its aftergrowth, nor gather in from its unturned vines. For it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat its crops out of the field. On this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his own property. If you make a sale moreover to your friend, or you buy from your friend's hand, you shall not wrong one another. Corresponding to the number of years after the Jubilee, you shall buy from your friend. He is to sell you according to the number of years of crops. In proportion to the extent of years, you shall increase its price. In proportion to the fewness of the years, you shall diminish its price. For it is a number of crops he's selling to you. So you shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am Yahweh your God. So he's saying don't take advantage of Jubilee and rip your friends off. Because this is about me. This is about my holiness. Now in Isaiah, and remember this all comes, this, this proclamation comes from Isaiah 61. But Isaiah 52 sets us up for some things. Isaiah 52 talks about the Israelites being redeemed. And in their minds when they hear it, they're thinking out of exile, we're coming home to our land. And that's true. That's, that's the... That's, one layer of this prophecy. But he's looking ahead to humanity being redeemed. And we know that because the next chapter, this is how he does it, by the, because he says this is how it's going to be done. The next chapter talks all about Jesus and the cross and what he would bear for us. Let's look at Isaiah 52 for just a minute. I just want you to see a couple of things here. He says, awake, awake, clothe yourself in strength, O Zion. Clothe yourselves in your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For the uncircumcised and the unclean will no longer come into you. Shake yourself from the dust. Rise up, O captive Jerusalem. So listen, he's talking to exiles who've been torn away from their land, right? They've been taken away from their land. And he brings in this picture of jubilee for them. He says, I am going to take you back. I'm going to bring you back home. Shake yourself off. Get ready to come home. Loose yourself from the chains around your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing, and you will be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to reside there. Then the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Now therefore, what do I have here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people have been taken away without cause? Again, the Lord declares, those who rule over them howl, and my name is continually blasphemed all day long. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, I am the one who is speaking. Here I am. Now remember, he's called us to proclaim release. See, we've received release, haven't we? And this message this morning is, is a little bit less about you receiving release as you proclaiming release. But you have to receive something before you can give it, right? If you're not convinced you have a right to be free, you'll never be convinced anyone else does. If you feel like you're not good enough for Jesus then no one else will really be good enough for Jesus or good enough for you. 
Jesus said, freely you've received, now freely give. The only way you can freely give is for you to first freely receive. He says, therefore in that day, I'm the one who's speaking, here I am. Then he says this, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. You might be tempted to think when you're in the capt- under captivity to the Assyrians, under captivity to the Babylonians, that, that God's no longer reigning here. Somehow this guy's reigning or that person's reigning. Somehow someone is ruling over me and it can't be God. But he says, get up on a mountain, begin to proclaim good news, begin to proclaim release and tell them your God reigns. Announce peace. Bring good news. Announce salvation. What does salvation mean? To be rescued, to be snatched back, to be delivered. And say to Zion, your God reigns. And here's the proof. Verse 8, listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. They shout joyfully together, for they will see with their own eyes when Yahweh restores Zion. Break forth, shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord, Yahweh, has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, that in the ends of the earth they may see the salvation of our God. Now here's the cool thing, and he tells them, depart, get out of there. Don't, don't, don't take your time, get out of there as fast as you can, because I'm setting you free. So he's talking about a, a speedy deliverance. Now, like I said, this is, this is the first layer of this is talking about the Israelites coming home, coming back to Zion. They've been carried away. But there's another layer to this about all of us coming home, about all of us being bought back. Then he says this in chapter 53. He begins to talk about Jesus, Amen. giving his life for the many. Talks about Jesus says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has returned to his own, has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity, the sin of us all to fall on him. And then it talks about by his wounds we were healed. That we've returned, we've been returned to the shepherd. So in all of this, it talks about the suffering on the cross. It talks about all that he did. But at the end of the chapter... Because Isaiah 53, for those of you that study the Bible, when you think of Isaiah 53, you think of Jesus suffering on the cross. Yeah? Because that's what mainly it's about. But don't forget the last part of the chapter. Most of the chapter is about Jesus suffering for you. Taking your sins. See, he says, we were like sheep that went away. We turned after our own way. We did our own thing. And Jesus had to pay for the sin of us doing our own thing. It was doing our own thing that got us sold into slavery. We got ourselves in that mess. You know? But Jesus said, I've come to redeem you. I've come to give my life as a ransom for the many. At the end of the chapter, he says this. In verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and he will be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, Jesus, my servant, will justify the many. He will bear their iniquities. He will carry your burden. He will carry your sin. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death. He was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So in the end of the chapter, we see Jesus gets his reward. 
and we're the reward. We're the, re- we're the result. We're what he was looking forward to on the cross. We're what he was looking forward to as he suffered. We're what he was looking forward to as he bore the whip on his back. He was looking forward and he got to rejoice and celebrate and divide his portion. We're his portion. We're what he's thrilled about. We're what he, he rejoiced in. Even as he was going through the suffering, he saw the joy of us. Amen. And it brings us right to chapter 54. Shout, shout, he says, for joy, O barren one. You who have borne no child, break forth in a joyful shouting and cry aloud, you who have not travailed or gone into labor. For the sons of the desolate one will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman, says the Lord, says Yahweh. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch out the curtains of your dwelling. Spare not. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your pegs. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left. Your descendants will possess nations and will resettle the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be put to shame. Do not feel humiliated, for you will not be disgraced, but you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your husband is your maker, whose name is Yahweh of hosts. And your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. For Yahweh has called you, like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she's rejected, says your God. For a brief moment, I forsook you. But with great compassion, I will gather you. In an outburst of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting loving kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord. Says Yahweh, your Redeemer. Luke 4, Jesus says, I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Favor. So many times we think of favor, we think of, you know, I got the parking spot I wanted. (laughs) Favor. Favor ain't fair. But uh, think bigger. Because when you think of favor, I'll tell you what the opposite of favor looks like. Because when it's contrasted in the Bible, here's the opposite of favor. The face of the Lord is turned away. But favor in the scripture... So often when he talks about favor, he talks about his face being turned towards you. His countenance on you. And he's not looking away. And he's not grimacing at what he's seeing, even though you might think he is. Oh God, I'm sure you grimace at me all the time. No. No, the light of his face, the light of his countenance is turned towards his people. I want you to see that it says, here's, here's the timeline of God for a brief moment. I turn my face. Thank God we, we see a brief moment as Jesus is on the cross where Jesus bore that, that shame, that anger. The Israelites felt forsaken as their captive to the Assyrians, to the Babylonians. He talks, about, he talks about a brief moment where he turned his face, a brief moment of anger. But look, look at the timeline here. For a brief moment, for a moment, I forsook you, but with great compassion, I will gather you. In an outburst of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting love and kindness, I will have compassion on you. So if you could just get a glimpse of brief compared to everlasting. Of, of, of a moment compared to eternity. 
And guys, that moment is behind us. We are in the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus came to proclaim this is the year of the Lord's favor where his face will not be turned from us. He says this, he said, I was angry for a moment. I hid my face from a moment. Jesus experienced the face being hidden. But he says, with everlasting loving kindness, I will have compassion on you. Says the Lord, your Redeemer, the one who buys you back. For this is like the days of Noah to me, when I swore that the waters of Noah would not flood the earth again. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you. It's a shame that so many Christians struggle with that verse. I've sworn I will not be angry with you. And maybe you're here and you've struggled with that. Because what we go back to is, well, he has a right to be angry. Yeah. But he, he put that right to be angry. Put it on Jesus. He will not be angry with you. He is not angry with you. We are not in the year of the Lord's anger. In fact, the year, it didn't even say a year of anger. It said there was a moment, but a lifetime of compassion. A moment, but an eternity of loving kindness. What might it have felt like for the Israelites of the time, the Jews of the time, who felt like somehow this is our fault. When the Seleucids came and took our land again, Antiochus profaned the temple in front of us. We couldn't do anything about it. We rebelled and then thought we maybe got our land back and then the Romans came and took it again. Our land is being dominated by people that are on our own. We're being oppressed and somehow this is our fault. What did we do to God? In fact, the teaching of the time as Jesus walked the earth, most of the, the, the teaching of the time was either we just need to assimilate to the Greeks or they're the problem. We, we, need to, we need to separate ourselves because we've obviously made God so mad that he sent the Romans here to punish us. So this is our fault, guys. The Pharisees went around saying, this is your fault. You didn't keep all the law. You didn't keep all the rules. So we earned this. Guys, let's just wallow in it for a while. But Jesus comes and he says, I've come to proclaim to you the year of Jubilee. I've come to proclaim to you the favorable year of the Lord. I've come to tell you God isn't angry. I've come to tell you he's not hiding his face from you. In fact, he has turned his face to his people. Like Zacharias prophesied over John, a son will dawn, a dawn will come. The sun will come on us again and will shine on us who've been sitting in a land of darkness. There will be a great light. God has not turned his face. He's turned his face towards us. And Jesus is the proof he'll never turn his face away. What does that change? It changes everything. It changes everything once we believe that we have been reconciled to God. Listen, everything that's broken in the planet is broken because of separation from God. I'm not saying that the person who was born into a broken situation deserved it. I'm saying the world is broken because humanity turned away from God. And as soon as Adam and Eve were separated from God, they experienced death even though their bodies kept working. Death was not your body stopping. Death was separation from life. And God is and was life. Separation from the joy 
from everything he is, from peace, from love, all of that, we were separated. There, there, there were elements still around. We still had traces of it, but we, we didn't have the fullness of it because we had separated ourselves from him. We were living in death because we were separated from life. And the scripture says that when Jesus came, he reconciled the world to himself. Actually, it says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Think of everything we lost when we were separated. Everything we lost, everything that's broken, everything that's wrong and messed up and wrecked was because we were separated from him. But God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. In fact, that's a very appropriate scripture and I'll read it to you real quick. In 2 Corinthians We'll wrap it up with this next few thoughts here. Because I think this is um, this is where we come in. How lovely are the feet of those who get up on a mountain and start proclaiming good news. You can't proclaim good news until there is good news to proclaim, right? Or else you're a liar. But, so that means good news has already come. It's just a question of whether anybody's got the fortitude to get up on a mountain and start shouting about it, tell somebody about it, start proclaiming it. How lovely. Uh, you could go into a lot of, in that. There's a lot of symbolism in that. But how lovely on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Announcing peace. Not just feel-good peace, but like Pastor Tracy shared a couple weeks ago, that, that, that peace between God and man, that, that peace that he fought for, that, that end to enmity. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men that we are made manifest or revealed to God, and I hope that we are made manifest in your consciences. We are not again committing ourselves to you, but we are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For if we're beside ourselves, it's for God. If we're of sound mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we've known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... They're a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, look at this. New things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This is what Jesus is talking about. This is the ministry he stepped into. The ministry of reconciliation. See, what, what ultimately is the point of the favorable year of the Lord? It's the favor of the Lord. That's the biggest point. I mean, thank God to get your land back. Thank God that slaves go free. The point why all of that is happening is because you've been reconciled to God. Amen. When we're reconciled to God, things are made right. 
But the greatest thing is he's proclaiming this is the year, this is the time of God's favor that he no longer is separate from you. He's no longer at a distance from you, but he has said, come here, come close, be reconciled. As Adam was to me, so are you. But only even better than that, because you've been born again, not after Adam, but after Jesus, the second Adam. You've been born again, not of the flesh, but of the spirit. Remember, he says, you're supposed to look because your old stuff went away. But look at this. Don't look at the old stuff. Look at this. New things have come. And he says, all of these new things came from God who gave us a ministry, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us, gave us the ministry. He gave it to us. Jesus passed it off. Said, guys, you're my successors. You're, you're the next in line. I'm transitioning my ministry. You're it. Here's my ministry. Bring people back. Get up on a mountain and say your God reigns. Get up on a high place and start announcing good news. Start announcing rescue. Start announcing proclaim, as they said in Leviticus 25. Proclaim release throughout the land. I just came from Philadelphia. Philadelphia, they have a bell. It's called the Liberty Bell. It's got a big crack in it, but it's called the Liberty Bell. It's the most famous bell in the world, I think. And the reason it's called the Liberty Bell is because somebody had the foresight to carve on it before America was even a nation. They carved that scripture on it. Proclaim liberty throughout the land. That's worthy of ringing a bell. Yeah. <laughs> right? Ring a bell. Get up there. I mean, let me ask you something. Is this how we see the gospel? Or do you see the gospel as a class you need to take and a class you need to teach? But the gospel is always meant as a proclamation, as an announcement. It is meant to be announced as good news. I thank God for teaching, for explaining. You know, you know, we see that throughout the book of Acts. There was times to explain further. But the gospel was first announced. Here it is. God's not angry with you. Here it is. He's reconciling you back to him through himself. See, so many times if I were to say to some people, see, God's not angry with you anymore. They think I'm preaching a different God. They, they think I'm preaching a baby, a, 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 a wimpy God who, who just suddenly says sin is okay. No. We are preaching a mighty God who is so mighty that he took every reason you gave him to be angry and put it on himself. God didn't suddenly say sin has no punishment. He punished it severely in Jesus Christ. And that self-righteousness that says I need to pay for my own way gets in the way of what God is trying to do. It says in Romans 10, my brothers aren't being saved. And the reason they're not being saved is that seeking to establish their own righteousness, they neglect the righteousness. They do not submit themselves to the righteousness which is from God. In other words, they're in rebellion. Their need to pay for themselves is actually an act of rebellion against God's grace. So get out of rebellion and get into reconciliation. And we've been given this ministry, and I love what it says here. Verse 19, he says, namely that God was in Christ. You know, so many times, because we don't really understand sometimes the, the, the reality of the Trinity, we think of God the Father being separated, uh, you know, totally different from Jesus the Son, like God had a wife and they had a kid. But Jesus was part of God. God didn't send his little kid, he sent himself. The Father, the Son, the Spirit, they're distinct. 
They are separate and yet they're one. Right? They're all God. But it's not like Jesus was a little kid wandering around heaven. He's like, Dad, do I have anything to do? Not yet, son. No, this was God sending himself to that cross. God was in Christ. So I've heard people say, God's not an abusive father. Why would he kill? Why is he participating in child sacrifice? You don't understand. This was him. He did this to himself for you. Now Jesus, the Son of God, communicated with God the Father. And there was a definite distinction between the two, but there was still one. So God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Boy, does that sound like that 50th year. Release. Everybody gets to go home. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. The word means the message of reconciliation. There's an announcement we get to make. I find it so weird that we walk around thinking we're stepping on everybody's toes by telling them the good news. Well, I just don't want to judge. Well, then don't judge. But tell them the good news. What what do you think you're doing? I, I don't know. I mean, I just don't want to be pushy. It's good news. It's not bad news. It's not like you parked in the wrong stall. It's, it's not like, you know, <laughs> it, it's not anything that you should be ashamed of. This is the good news. And if we saw it as that, we'd probably be a little less timid about it. I get to tell people that God wants them back. I get to tell them they get to go home. I get to tell them their slavery is over. I get to tell them every reason they could give God for God to be mad at them has been placed on Jesus. And now God says, I turn my face towards you with favor upon you. I get to tell them that God reigns. Then he says, verse 20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, the Messiah. And so God, we're making an appeal through us. We beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Paul, the great apostle. Paul, the the Pharisee of Pharisees at one point. Paul, the educated man. Paul, the great leader of men and women. Paul says, I love you enough to beg you. Don't miss this. Jesus didn't quote all of that verse in Isaiah. Because the first part says, I've come to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. The next half of that sentence says the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus didn't announce that that day. Because though the prophets saw that as one, these are actually part one and part two separated by millennia. There will be a day when people give an account for their own actions. And you're either written in that Lamb's Book of Life or you're not. You will stand before God on that day and he will look at you in the eye and he will say, I have no record of sin on your account. And you you might feel like arguing with him. But you must be reading that wrong. Because I clearly remember doing this. He'll say, nope, it's not there. You're innocent. You're clean. But there will be those who rejected salvation. Who at that moment will weep because they'll wish. They will wish they accepted that offer. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. 
said, oh, if you had known the things which bring for peace, the things which made for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes. He said, there'll be a day when barricades are thrown up against your own walls because you did not recognize the day of your visitation. This is a day of salvation. This is what caused Paul to say, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. This is what caused him to say, I'm begging you be reconciled to God. Yeah, he wanted the good things, but he also wanted them not to fall into the, their own judgment, to reject the righteousness of God. So he was willing to say, I beg you. I've thought of this before. When I've talked to my friends from school or I've talked to people that I wanted to know Jesus, some of them call you up out of the blue and they say, can we go for coffee? You go out and you say, Lord, give me the words to say. I don't know what to say to this person. And I've viewed that conversation differently because now I view it in light of this verse as though God were making an appeal through us. And now I view it this way. What if God himself sat down across that table from them and made his appeal? What if? Because that's exactly what he wants to do through you. He doesn't want you to say, this is my desire for you. This is my hope for you. He wants you to step into a place where you say, God is going to use me to make his appeal to this person. I get to announce something, but it's not my word. It's his word. He's given me the word of reconciliation. My job is to open my mouth and say it. We beg you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. And of course, the next verse is so important. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness, the right, the innocent, the just, the right with God, the righteousness of God in him. And I believe that right there is the word of reconciliation. He said, namely, this is the word of reconciliation that God was in Christ bringing the world to himself. And this is, the, this is how he got it done. He made him who knew no sin to become sin on your behalf that you might be the righteousness of God in Christ. What a valuable thought. What a beautiful thought. I pray that the shame that's attached itself to you when you feel like, boy, I, I mean, maybe the regret of why haven't I said this more, why haven't I done this more, would be replaced by the pure joy of announcing the good news. Go back this week. Go back. Do me a favor. Go back and read Isaiah 52 again. And read how the people react when they get the job of announcing good news. It says the watchmen shout joyfully together. It says they're excited. They're breaking out in joy. I mean, I'm praying here that we would once again step into the joy of the soul winner. That we'd step into the joy. Jesus said, it's time to gather in the harvest and we're going to rejoice together. Yes. He didn't say the sorrow of preaching the gospel, the burden of ministry. No, he said the joy of bringing those in. And the apostle Paul said, I'm willing to go to prison. I'm willing to get beat. I'm willing for all that because it's so good for me. I get joy out of announcing the gospel to you. Jesus, for that joy, was willing to endure the cross. That joy will bring you through everything. The joy will bring you through your shyness. 
The joy will bring you through intimidation. The joy will bring you through that fear of losing a relationship. The joy will bring you through the fear of getting, getting knocked points off of your job because that joy will say there's no greater feeling than stepping into the joy that Jesus felt by announcing God's not angry anymore and he wants you back and he made a way for that to happen. And when you stand on judgment day, do you know what you're going to say? Because I do. Nothing. I'm going to keep my mouth shut. <laughs> and I'm going to let God do the talking. And I'm going to let Jesus do the talking on my behalf. See, my account, there'll be an account that I give to God as a pastor, the account as a believer, but that's for the things I, that's for the things I did. That's, that's me talking to him about what I did in my life. That is not a time of punishment. In fact, that's a time of reward. Yes. If I did good, if I was, a, if I was, if I was faithful to the call. But that great judgment day, the great judgment seat, when I stand on that day, my mouth is shut, I stand there, and I let Jesus talk for me. (laughs) And I'm going to let him declare me righteous. And I'm going to let him say, come into my joy. I'm going to let him open the door and say, here's your reward. I'm going to let him say, spend the rest of eternity with me. I'm going to let him say, this is who you are. You're my child. You're my son. And I'm going to join all the saints throughout history, some of whom got saved on the cross. That's how much they did for the king. They looked over and said, remember me. That's what they did right in their life. But somehow that was enough to be reconciled to God. If that's not good news, then I'm sorry. What is? I don't care how many times the Warriors won the Stanley Cup. I don't, I don't care what politician gets in. I, I don't care. It's never going to be that good of news. How lovely are the feet. They're going to shout. They're going to rejoice. This is a time of joy. And I want to remind you that Paul said in Romans, today is the day of salvation. Today is a season of rescue. Today is a time where the lost are coming home. Don't miss this day. Don't miss this day. And that goes for two people. As the listener, don't miss this day. This is your chance. You don't know how much longer you have. Don't miss this day. But as the preacher, don't miss this day. Don't miss your opportunity. Today is the day of salvation. We are living in the year of jubilee. Today is the permanent, for the rest of your life, you get to walk around saying, I'm proclaiming good news. You're free. Liberty. Release. That's the rest of your life. You, it's like having a job for the rest of your life. You got to hand out the million dollar check to somebody because they won the sweepstakes. But so much better. For the rest of your life, don't miss this day. This is the day of salvation. This is the year of jubilee. This is the year of the Lord's favor. Receive that favor in your life. Whatever's been taken from you, the Lord is more than able to return. He's going to bring you back home. He brought you back out of slavery and brought you into his home. He transferred you out of the domain, the control, the slavery of darkness, and transferred you. And that word transferred, I believe somebody said this last week, that word transferred is the same word that's used as translated. When Philip is translated from one place to another, it's the same word he uses when he says he transferred you. He translated you out of darkness into his kingdom. It's not a slow journey. It's not a, it's not a long walk. He did not say, come with me, I'll take you slowly to my kingdom. He translated you instantly out of slavery into his kingdom. You looked up and you're sitting at a table with a bunch of lamb in front of you. You don't know how you got there. 
If you don't like lamb, substitute tofu or whatever. I don't care. <laughs> but you're at the table now. Yes. Praise the Lord. Amen. It's time. Let's not miss our day. Yes. See, I don't know. My dad used to always say this. We don't, I don't know if this is my last. Or I don't know if I'm the last generation before Jesus' return. But I know this is my last generation. Yes. You only got one. Yes. Use this day. Amen. Stand with me today. Let's praise the Lord.